morning and turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 38. A very unusual passage and the reason we're speaking on it this morning is because I'm preaching through the book of Genesis and if you're going through a book you can't skip a chapter without it being very obvious (laughs) and so we're going to deal with chapter 38 this morning and uh, I hope you'll follow with me in your Bibles as we read Genesis chapter 38. And it came to pass that at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again, yet that she... And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Chezeb when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Dulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her, and covered her with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is by the way of Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me? that thou mayest come in unto me. And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelet and thy staff that is thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it for her, lest we be ashamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, 
and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose, whose these are am I with child. And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet, the bracelet, and the staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son. And he knew her again no more. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took, took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Perez. And afterwards came out his brother and had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you might bless the preaching of your word today. We know that this is a difficult passage, so I pray that you give enablement as we deal with it. And I pray, Lord, that the most important truth here will be discerned, and that if there's anyone here today who has never tasted of the grace of God, that today they might trust Jesus as their Savior. We know none of us deserve salvation, but many of us, Lord, have been saved, not because we're good, not because we, we earn heaven, not because we deserve heaven, but because of who you are and what you did for us, and your grace that's sufficient and willing to save anyone who will come to, the, come to you for salvation. Lord, teach us this lesson today. Help us to be so glad of the grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled the message this morning, Background for Grace. Background for Grace. Last week, we began the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. It's a disturbing beginning as we saw young Joseph at 17 years old, hated by his brothers, and sold as merchandise. This was early human trafficking to the Ishmaelites, who then took him down to Egypt and sold him as a slave to Potiphar, who was captain of the guard, one of Pharaoh's officers. Because we know how the story ends, the sad beginning is actually exciting because we know God will overrule man's sin and use it to accomplish his will and get Joseph to Egypt where Joseph needs to be. But then the story of Joseph is interrupted by this account we have just read about Judah and Tamar. Graphic details of Judah, his sons, and Tamar are given so that your first reaction would be not to read it in a, place of, of, in a public setting like this of public worship. But let's remember that God says in the Word of God in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is profitable. Let me read that to you, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So this is a profitable passage. Therefore, let's summarize the passage and then attempt to determine why God would record this story in his profitable word. Let's look at this story first of all in a brief summary of it, just exactly what happened. First of all, this story is about Judah. Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, 
the fourth son of Jacob. He's the fourth son born to Leah. You remember there was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. Reuben had already messed up. You remember he lay with his, his dad's concubine, Bilhah. And then Simeon and Levi really messed up because they killed, after deceiving the Shechemites, they slaughtered all of them. They were really acting like the heathen round about them. And so the fourth one is Judah, and this passage is telling about Judah. It says in verse 1, and it came to pass at that time, at that time. That time was following the sale of Joseph, which we read about in chapter 37. In fact, verse 26 and 27 of chapter 37 tell us that Judah was the one that suggested that they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Judah then left his brothers. The Bible says in verse, in verse 1 that he, that he left his brothers. It says, and uh, he turned into a certain Adulamite. Well, it says he went down from his brethren. brethren. So the sale of Joseph took place. They were out caring for the sheep, and they're probably getting ready to go home. And uh, at this time, or maybe right after they got home and revealed the message to, to their, their dad, sometime close to that, Judah left home and uh, left his brethren, probably just wanted to get away for a while because it was a very tense situation at home. And all this about Joseph, he didn't want to answer any questions, and he just decided he was going to get away. And he became a friend to a man who lived in the town of Adullam. So he's called an Adullamite, and his name was Hira. Then Judah married the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. It's interesting that his wife is never mentioned by name. Now, ladies, you don't like that if nobody knows your name. Somebody said the sweetest sound to any ear is your own name. <laughs> and uh, that's why I always try to remember names. And so, uh, you know, if I meet somebody for the first time, I always forget it the first time. And so I'll ask again and ask again until I finally try to remember it. But uh, this lady is not named. It just says that uh, in, in verse 2, that Judas saw her, that he met, he went down to a certain Adulamite, he became friends with, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So her dad's name was Shua, and he took her, he went in unto her, and, he, and, and then he lay with her. The Bible says that he saw her, he took her, he lay with her. Now, when it says he took her, it might meant that he married her, and we just don't know for sure. But anyway, he went into her, and uh, consummated this relationship at that time. And then she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived and bare three children by, by Judah. And uh, their names were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, Shelah is spelt with I and I. It's uh, S-H-E-L-A-H. And so it's Shelah. Ur, you notice in verse 3, was named by Judah. Judah named him. But then the next two, Onan and Shelah, were named by his wife. Now, I read one commentator that says this is a sign that men are losing their, already losing their place in the home. I don't think that's true. There's nothing wrong with your wife naming your child. And so I just think we can press things too much sometimes. 
but it does say that uh, Judah named Ur, and then she named uh, Onan, and seems like she also named Shelah. Judah had moved from the place where he was, probably Hebron, to Chezeb on this, at this, uh, before the birth of this third child. So the third child, Shelah, was born in Chezeb. And then Judah arranged, after Ur got old enough, Judah arranged for the marriage of Ur. Now, Judah's marriage to this Canaanite woman was not arranged. He left home and did it on his own. But maybe he learned that maybe I need to be more cautious. And I just think, it doesn't tell us, but I think probably Judah surveyed the ladies in the area and thought Tamar, she was an attractive lady, had good qualities, and probably he thought this would be a wonderful wife for my son. And so he arranged the marriage, and they got married. The Bible says that Ur was wicked. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now, and God killed him. Now, we don't know what his wickedness was. But uh, you remember, he's been around the Canaanites all of his life. And uh, so he's learned from their ways, and he was wicked, and God killed him. And then Judah told Onan, the next son, now you marry your brother's wife, your brother just died. I want you to marry her, and I want you to raise up that first child to carry on the name of Ur. And so Ur, he, that first child will receive Ur's inheritance. Onan didn't like that. He did marry this lady. He went unto her, but then, but then he didn't allow her to be impregnated, and the Bible says God was very displeased, and uh, God killed him. Now, this is what later becomes Leverite marriage. And that is, if your brother dies, then you are to marry your brother's wife and raise up children for, uh, for him. But that wasn't in effect yet for the Israelites. But it was a practice, we're told, by some scholars that told that in the area, uh, they had this practice. But it seemed like God was pleased with this because this was important family. And Judah was a very important son. And anyway, uh, Onan was also killed by the Lord. And then Judah asked Tamar, she said, now it seems like Tamar was living in Judah's household, in their group, you know. I mean, they had tents, you know, it was a big family. So they had, and it seemed like she had come there because she was married to Ur, and since she was married to Onan, so she's probably living there. And so he says, you go back to your father's house. And when Sheila gets old enough, I'll let, have you marry him. And he can raise up a child to Ur, uh, your, your first husband. Well, she, uh, Tamar decided she would do that and she would wait. Now, we don't know how much younger Sheila was. It seems like she had them in pretty close, uh, close together and that is Ur, Onan, and Sheila, but probably he was a few years difference. And so he wasn't old enough to be married. And so she said, I will wait. And so she did. And then Judah's wife died. You know that unnamed woman? She died. It still doesn't give her name. So she dies, and it says that Judah was comforted after a while, and then he went with those who were going to shear the sheep. Now we're told that sheep shearing in those days, and probably today as well, uh, that, that it was a festive time for the men. And they would all go to the sheep shearing, and they'd have their, she their, their sheep sheared, and, and they would have parties and all of that. And uh, so 
so uh, Judah decides to go uh, with them. And he goes with his friend, this Canaanite, this heathen, Hira. He goes with him. And then Tamar understands that, look, Sheila has grown old enough that he could be my husband, but Judah is not following through. And you remember it says, as we read it, that Judah in the back of his mind had this fear that this same thing that happened to Ur and Onan might happen to Sheila. And I believe he promised this to Tamar, but he really didn't want to do it. He didn't want to give her to him because he, he was afraid that he would die as well. It's like uh, she was cursed. And so she's at home with her dad, and she's waiting, but it never happens. And she sees that Sheila's grown, and he, she, he was not given to her. So she takes matters into her own hands, and when he goes up to shear the sheep, she decides that she's going to go, and she's going to put off her widow's garments that widows wore in those days, and she would put on the attire of a harlot. Now, let me remind you, ladies, it was back then, it still is today. There is an attire of a harlot. <laughs> and Christians, ladies, want to make sure that they don't dress like those har- harlots dress. Have you seen how harlots dress? And then have you seen some Christian young people who dress the same way? It's so foolish for you to do that. You shouldn't do that because there is a dress of a harlot. And uh, so this woman dressed in the way in those days that a harlot would dress. And one of the things is she wrapped a veil around her face so that she could not be seen. And so Judah, he's gone up to, be, to shear the sheep and... Uh, Tamar is sitting by the wayside, and she's dressed like a harlot, and Judah, this child of Israel, child of Jacob, uh, wants her to commit immorality with him. He doesn't know that she's his daughter-in-law. And she says, well, what will you give me? Like a harlot would do, paying for it. And he says, I will give you a kid of the goats but I'll have to bring it later. She said, all right, but what, will you, what pledge will you give me that you will do that? And he said, my signet, which was a seal, and my bracelet, which was a, a, like a, something you'd wear around your neck, and it was a cord, and then my staff. I'd intended to bring my walking stick that was one of the kids, grandkids made me, but I, I forgot it this morning but it has their names on it, and it's significant, you know, and uh, anybody in the family would know that belongs to me because they gave it to me. Well, every man in those days had a staff, and it was personalized. And so Judah, being the important man he was anyway, his staff would have been personalized, and maybe it had his name on it, or maybe it just had an insignia on it. But somebody would know that that's Judah's staff. So he gives it to her, and he gives her this cord that he probably hung around his neck and this seal that he would use for official documents, and she has that. Three months later, it's found out that, that Tamar is with child. Let me, before we leave there, let me say something about that. It says with child. It doesn't say with a mass of cells. It doesn't say with a fetus. It says with child. Because the child developing in the womb is a child. And so she was with child. Three months. 
And it comes, the word comes back to Judah that, you, that uh, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. She's not married, but she's expecting. And, oh, this is a terrible thing. And he, he was indignant. He said, she's still a part of his family. You know, he's, she's the daughter-in-law. Uh, bring her and let her be burnt. Sort of an unusual punishment. But let her be burnt. And so they go to get her. And it seems like from the text that she's coming. And she says, before I get there, you take this ahead to him and show him, by the person who owns these, am I with child? And Judah's sitting there in his house, and remember the messenger comes in and says, Tamar is coming, but she wanted you to see this and let you know that the person who owns this, and they probably knew. I imagine the people that brought him his, his possessions knew it was him. They knew that staff. But when he saw it and the people around him, he could not deny it. And he said, she's more righteous than I am. And uh, he admitted his sin. And uh, he, he couldn't cover it up, and so he admitted his sin. But he never had any relations with her again. But then she had children, the child. And the child ended up being two children. <laughs> and that is, she was with twins. And the story says that the first one, when they were, she was giving birth, the first one's hand came out. And so the midwife said, well, that's going to be the firstborn, so I don't get them confused because they're twins. I tie, she tied a thread around, the, around the, the hand or the finger. And then after she did, the hand pulled back. And then the other brother came out, and his name was Ferez. Ferez. And, and so uh, he was the firstborn. And then the, the one who came out next had the, the cord around his, around his hand. His name was, was Zara. And so these two twins were born. Now that's the end of the story. And then it goes on in chapter 38 telling about Joseph. And so you wonder, after all of that, you wonder why did God put this account here in the Scripture? What's profitable about this? Well, I think we can say a few things. Number one, it's necessary because Judah is a very prominent part of Israel's story. I looked it up, and Judah is some called, sometimes called Judas, uh, but just the name Judah. I looked it up, and it, it appears 817 times in the, in the Bible. So he was an important figure. Judah is of the, of the tribe that will, that will eventually uh, produce the Messiah. Jesus Christ came not from the tribe of Reuben, not from the tribe of Simeon, not from the tribe of Levi, and if we were choosing, who would we choose? We would choose Joseph. He's the best, but God no, said he's from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus was born from the tribe of Judah, and by the way, it was not from, uh, from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. It was from Leah, and Judah was the fourth son of Leah. But he's very prominent. And then he plays a prominent role later. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 43. Chapter 43, verse 3. And Judah spake unto him, saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. You remember they had been to, been to Egypt, and Joseph, the, the second man in charge, they didn't know it was him. He said, uh, No, you've got to send your brother. So when they go back home to tell him, 
uh, Judah's the one that steps up and says, this is the way it is. He seems to be the spokesman. Verse 8, And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, and that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. So Judah is the spokesman for the family. In chapter 44, verse 14, it says of Judah, And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. So Judah and his brother, he's, he's the head one of his brother. Even though Reuben and Simeon are older than he, he seems to take prominence. Verse 16, And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? And how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also uh, he also with whom the cup is found. And so Judah is the spokesman for the family. And then we find out in chapter 46, verse 28, it says, And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. Jacob and his family is getting ready to go down into Egypt because they found out Joseph is alive and Joseph is asking them to come down. And so he sends Judah out ahead of everybody. Judah's leading the family down. Not Reuben, not Simeon, not Levi, but Judah. So Judah is the leader. So without this story, with Judah being so prominent, we would not know when we read the book of, in, in Matthew chapter 1, we wouldn't know who's this Tamar. And who's this Perez? And uh, do we know anything about them? Well, God inserted this so we would know something about them. And that is Tamar, we've just read who she was, and Perez, we read who he was. Then there's probably another reason God included this story. This story adds to the details about the people in Canaan and why God needed to get his people out of there and send them to Egypt, the land of Goshen. You see, the time they've been in Canaan has already affected them. You remember it started back in chapter 34 where Shechem, a Canaanite, defiled Dinah, their sister. And then Jacob's sons acted like the people around them, the heathen around them, and they slaughtered all the Shechemites. Then chapter 35, Reuben uh, commits incest and laying with his, his dad's uh, concubine, Bilhah. And then in chapter 38, then Judah himself marries a Canaanite. They are being affected by these people around them. And his sons, Ur and Onan, uh, are wicked. They displease the Lord. So you can see the effect that this whole area is having on, on the children of Israel. That's the promised land, but they're not to be there yet. Later they will be there, but right now it's not quite ripe for judgment. It's sure getting that way. And when it's ripe for judgment, God will send them and take over the land but it's a bad influence on them. So he sends them down to Egypt. And you remember when they get to Egypt, that Pharaoh gives them a special land called Goshen, a land by itself, a prosperous land, and lets them inhabit that land. And in that land of Goshen, they start to develop as a nation, and they become a mighty people. And God put them down to Egypt to develop. Sometimes Egypt's called the womb of the children of Israel. Because they, there they developed into a nation. And so we can see the, the, the reason for this chapter, verse chapter 38. It tells us how they get down there. It tells us all about it. But the greatest reason probably for chapter 38 of this account is to give us background for grace. Background for grace. That's what I've entitled the message. 
I mean, the grace of God is surely seen in this passage. God never wants man to glory in himself. God always wants to get the glory. God always wants to get the praise for everything because he's God. He deserves it. And God does not want us to glory in ourselves. 1 Corinthians tells us that, that God chooses the weak things. Why? Because the Lord would get the glory and not man. So God wants man not to get the glory, but wants God to get the glory. Uh, The sordid story that we read this morning produces three people whose names are found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. They're Judah, Tamar, and Perez. You'll find them in in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. God uses undeserving people to accomplish his will. Aren't we glad of that? (laughs) God uses undeserving people to accomplish his will. And uh, so this passage really tells us about grace. That's called grace, unmerited favor. It's interesting that there are five women's names in the genealogy of Jesus. Do you know who they are? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Bathsheba is not named by name, but it tells who she is. Uh, that she was, you know, she was married to uh, the, uh, Uriah the Hittite. And so five women are mentioned. It's interesting because Tamar was an adulterer and and guilty of incest. Rahab was a harlot. Uh, Ruth was a Moabitess, and before she came to know the Lord, she was no doubt an idolater. And Bathsheba was an adulterer, and all, all four of those were Gentiles. Tamar was a Gentile. Rahab was a Gentile. Ruth because she was married, she was Moabite, so she was a Gentile. And then Bathsheba, because she was married to Uriah the Hittite, probably means she was a Hittite, and so she was a Gentile. And so there's only one Jew lady in the genealogy of Jesus, and that's Mary. All of them have shady backgrounds except Mary. (laughs) And Mary was the virgin. And so this just shows us that God's grace is amazing. You see... You might be surprised to read in the Lord's genealogy that Rahab, the harlots, in the Lord's genealogy. But let's be truthful. I imagine someday in heaven, somebody's going to be walking down the streets of gold and they knew you before you ever got saved and they're going to stop and say, you're in heaven? (laughs) I'm sure that's true of a lot because the truth is we don't deserve it, do we? We don't deserve heaven. No one is saved by merit. Everyone is saved by grace. What God says about all of us is very humbling. He says in Psalm 53 and also Psalm 14, it says this, God looked down from heaven to see if there were any that did good. And he says this, They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Another passage says all of our righteousness is are as filthy rags in God's sight. Your goodness might impress me and might impress others, but it doesn't impress God. And your goodness does not allow you to get to heaven. Some people think they're going to go to heaven because they're a church member, or they're a deacon, or they're a pastor, or they've done this, or they've done that. The Lord says none of that will get you to heaven. It won't help. Also, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we, everybody has gone astray. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, 
No, not one. In case you didn't get the, get the meaning of none righteous, he says, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 says, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned. Everybody is a sinner. But aren't you glad that God can save undeserving people? He saved us. He can save undeserving people. The wonderful passage of Scripture that talks about God's grace is found in Ephesians chapter 2. If you'll turn with me there. Ephesians chapter 2. It's a wonderful grace passage. And it gives the condition of all of us before we were saved. Let's look at it quickly. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, and lust of the flesh, and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. Well, that says a mouthful. What does that say about us? About us, it says first of all we were dead. Dead means separated from God. Everybody is dead, separated from God. You might look at a person and say, well, they're a spiritual person. Well, if they've never trusted Jesus, they're dead, separated from God. And the Bible says all started out that way. All of us have been there. We're also deceived. Verse 2 and 3 says we're deceived by the world. We're deceived by the flesh. We're deceived by the devil. And before we trusted Jesus as our Savior, we were dead and we were deceived. But he also says in verse three, verse 2 that we were disobedient. We were children of disobedience. And then the last thing he says in verse 3 is we are children of wrath, and that is we're doomed. So we're dead, deceived, disobedient, and doomed. That's what we are without Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter how good you think you are, how people are impressed by your life, how good they think you might be, it doesn't matter. God says all of us, before we trust Jesus as our Savior, are dead, deceived, disobedient, and doomed. But there's somebody who changes that, and only God can. You can't change it by turning over a new leaf. The only one who can change that is God, and it says in verse, verse 1, but you hath he quickened. Also, verse 5 says he has quickened us. Who quickened us? God did. He made us alive. Uh, we didn't make ourselves alive. He made us alive. We were dead, and he, he made us alive. That's called the new birth. You trust Jesus as your Savior, and he, and he gives you brand new life. And Jesus does that. You don't do that. And then he saves us. Verse 4 says God saves us. Verse 5, God saved us. And verse, verse 8 says he saved us. Saved means that you are rescued. We should never be ashamed to use the word saved. You know, it's sometimes when you're around unsaved people, you sort of hesitate to say saved because they sometimes make fun of that. Let's not be ashamed of that term. God says it over and over and over in Scripture, and it means that he has rescued you. He rescued you. When you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he rescued you. He saved you. And he gave you a new standing. Verse 6, it says, He raised you up to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our standing is in the Lord. The Bible says we are in Christ. We have that standing of being in Christ. And it's so sure we're going to get to heaven, it's as if we're already there. And he says our standing is in Jesus Christ. You were undeserving, 
a hell-bound sinner, and now you're saved. And you have this standing with the Lord. And why, why is that possible? Because of the nature of God. It says in this passage in verse 4 that he's rich in mercy. It says in verse 4 that he has great love. Verses 5, 7, and 8 says he exercises grace. And verse 7 says he exercises kindness. So the kind God who is rich in mercy and love displays grace upon you. That means unmerited favor. He saves you even though you don't deserve it. You know, you read in the Bible about the children of Israel and how God's going to restore them and he has a special place for them during the millennial reign of Christ. And you wonder, why, Lord? Why? All the times that they disobeyed you and they turned back to idolatry and you sent them off into captivity and all that, and you bring them back finally to the land, and they're in the land today, but they still don't believe in you. The people in Israel today, I stand for Israel, I support Israel, but they don't believe in Jesus. They still haven't trusted him as their savior. And still he has a plan for them in the future. Why? Not because they deserve it. No, because he chose them and he has a plan. He promised and he's going to fulfill his promise. And why did God save you? Because you deserved it? Because you were a good candidate. Because you had potential. Because you had abilities that he could use. That has nothing to do with it. God saved you because he is gracious. And he tells you about what he did for you. And he says, if you'll just believe that and put your faith in me, I will save you. And I did that. Those of you who trusted Jesus did that. You came to a place in your life where you didn't think, well, I deserve it now. You came to the place in your life where you realized, Lord, I don't deserve anything but hell. I don't deserve grace. I don't deserve your favor. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve to be saved, but I believe Jesus died for this wretched person. And he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. He took the sin of God, uh, 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 my sin upon himself. God the Father put that on him. And he paid for all of it. And he said, it's finished. He paid it all. And then he died. They buried him. And then the third day, he arose victorious from the grave. And I believe that, Lord. I believe that. I trust you for what you've done for me. And when you do that, the Lord saves you. And you say, well, what did I have to do about that? Well, the Bible says in verse 8 that he says, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. You didn't work for it. And the only thing you had to do was believe. It's by faith. Believe. So you come before the Lord, and you're a, you're a good example of what God doesn't like. <laughs> Can God save you? I had a man tell me one time, he says, Preacher, I've done so many bad things, I cannot believe that God would save me. And I said, his name was Nelson, he was a drunk. And I said, Nelson, the Lord will save you. He has paid for all those sins. He will save you. I don't know if that ever got home to him. I tried and tried to get him to see that. But whether he ever did, I don't know. But you see, the Lord's died for our sins. He will save you, but you've got to come to the place where you believe what he did for you on the cross. And you trust that. And you might say, somebody might ask you, why do you think you're going to heaven? Don't you ever say this. Well, I've been a pretty good person. Don't you ever say, well, I taught Sunday school in, in, in my church. Or I was a Sunday school superintendent for 20 years. 
That doesn't have a thing to do with it. You remember those people in Matthew chapter 7 that come before the Lord and they say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out demons in thy name? Have we not done many wonderful works? And the Lord will say unto them, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. You see, the very fact that you would try to bring your goodness to the Lord and convince him that you're good enough to get to heaven is iniquity in God's eyes. He said that that stinks in God's eyes. God doesn't want a thing to do with that. You don't deserve it. God died for undeserving people, and he wants to save those who admit who they are and trust what he did for them. You must trust the Lord as your personal Savior. You see, God wants to save people because he's a God of grace. Why chapter 38? Well, it's background for grace. God has wonderful things he's going to do for Judah and for the children of Israel. They don't deserve it, but God is gracious. One of my favorite songs, as you probably know, I've sang it many times. It says, Unworthy am I of the grace that he gave, unworthy to hold to his hand. Amazed that a king would reach down to a slave. This love I cannot understand. Unworthy, unworthy, a beggar in bondage and alone. But he made me worthy, and now by his grace, his mercy has made me his own. And then another song that I like very well, and it's one of my favorites, says this, Should I at the gate of heaven appear to answer the question, What claim hast thou here? What hast thou to offer? Yea, what is thy plea? With blessed assurance, my answer will be, All that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want All that I need, all that I plead is Jesus. Jesus is the way to heaven. There is no other way. And he saves us by grace through faith. I hope you've trusted him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for Jesus. Thank you for what he did for us. We didn't deserve that, Lord. But you promised that if we believe what you did, put our faith and trust in you, that you will save us. And it will be by grace, not by merit, totally by grace. We thank you that a chapter such as chapter 38 reminds us how God is so gracious. These people surely don't deserve to be in your, in your genealogy. We don't know what they did later in their life, Lord but it still is a picture of your grace towards them. And we thank you for being gracious to us. If there's anyone here today who has not trusted Jesus, I pray that today they will put their faith in you. We ask in his name. Amen.